Well, if you have your Bible again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job, Job chapter 38. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 561. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through uh, the book of Job, and we're coming to the end of our study together, and Lord willing, next week we will uh, finish the book. So we'll begin in Job chapter 38 this morning, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, God's final exam, Job chapter 38, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1, Job 38 verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. A college student went to take a final exam at the end of the semester, and to his amazement, he did not know the answer to a single question on the test. And he knew that he had no possibility of passing the exam. So he attempted to win the professor's favor with a little bit of humor. And across the top of the exam, he wrote these words, only God knows the answers to these questions. Merry Christmas. He turned in the test and he went home for spring break. And during the holidays, he received his graded exam from his professor. And at the top of the page, in big red letters, were these words. God gets a hundred. You get a zero. Happy New Year. Now, this sinking feeling of not knowing any of the answers on an exam are all too familiar with a lot of us in this room. In particular, this morning, I am remembering an accounting test at WVU. Job is about to have a similar experience as he finally gets what he's been longing for for 37 chapters, a meeting with God. As Job had been arguing with his friends, he has accused God of injustice and he has begged God again and again for an opportunity to meet him in court and to present his case. And for 36 chapters, God has been silent. But now, finally, God is going to speak. But when Job got what he wanted, a day in court with God, he did not want what he got. God suddenly burst on the scene and spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. Are you ready for this? Asking him over 70 questions. And what follows from Job chapter 38 until Job chapter 42 is the longest conversation in the Bible in which God speaks. 
Now it's significant that God does not answer a single charge that Job has filed throughout the book. Instead, God gives an account to Job of his own sovereignty, power, providential care, and goodness. God wants to impress upon Job that with his limited knowledge and blurred perspective, he is in no position to question God's government and rule over the universe. And so, in this passage of Scripture, God gives Job his final exam. And this test leaves Job in silence and in sorrow. And so there's two main points that I want us to consider this morning as we look at this passage. And the first thing I want us to see is the sovereignty of God and the silence of Job. And we'll begin in Job chapter 38. And we see at the beginning of this chapter that God answers Job. Beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. God suddenly breaks his long silence, and he speaks to Job out of his anger. He speaks directly, he speaks audibly, and he speaks powerfully. The Bible says that a fierce whirlwind blew across the landscape where Job was standing there on the ash heap, emphasizing the awesomeness and the power of this divine encounter. And the Bible says that out of this whirlwind, the Lord answered Job. Now you'll notice in your Bible that the word Lord in verse number one is all in capital. It's the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the name for God that emphasizes his self-existence and his personal covenant relationship with his people. And the book of Job has not used this word for God since the second chapter of the book. And so God is emphasizing to Job his self-existence, his sovereign rule, his sovereign reign, his sovereign power, his covenant relationship with his suffering servant. And then you notice in Job 38 and verse 2 that out of this world when God delivers his first question and he asks Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And with this question, God is accusing Job of obscuring his nature with his many words. He's saying to Job, Job, the more you spoke about me, the more you obscured the reality of who I am and what I do. And according to God in verse number 2 of Job 38, Job was speaking about a subject with which he possessed very little knowledge. Now, what I want you to notice this morning is what is missing in this verse. Notice what God doesn't say to Job in verse 2 of Job chapter 38. There's no condemnation of Job. There's no reversal from God of the description of Job's character that he gave in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. You'll notice that God offers Job no apology. 
You'll notice also that there's no commendation of Job. There's no words of encouragement. There's no comfort. There's no consolation. God immediately begins with questions. You'll also notice that God doesn't give Job an explanation. He doesn't even discuss with Job the events of Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 that led to Job's suffering. And you'll also notice that there is no discussion in this verse of the problem of sin or evil or the justice of God. God questions Job. Then in verse 3 of Job chapter 38, Job, God follows his reproof of Job with a command for Job to dress for action like a man. In the picture that, that the writer of Job is giving to us is that of the picture in the ancient culture of those days when men would wear long robes and when they were going to go into battle or when they were going to take off running, they would pull all of their garments up and they would tuck them into their belt so they'd be ready for action to move forward. And God is saying to Job, Job, the battle between me and you is about to begin. Prepare yourself. Dress for action. Act like a man. Because I'm going to question you and you are going to answer me. And so God answers Job. And then beginning in verse 4 of Job chapter 38, all the way to the end of chapter 39, God examines Job. And he examines Job through five different categories. Now listen. I don't want you to just do a study of Job. As I show you these questions that God asked Job, I want you to insert yourself in Job's spot as if God were asking you these same questions. Are you ready? We're going to pick up the pace a little bit, so keep your Bible open. Beginning in verses 4 through 7 of Job 38, God asked Job, what do you know, Job, about cosmology? What do you know about the cosmos? Look in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy... And in these verses, God is pictured as a master builder who surveys the ground of the universe, who determines the measurements of the universe, who pours the footer and lays the cornerstone and constructs the building. God is describing for Job how he created the universe and everything in it. And then he asked Job, Job, where were you when I did all of these things? Surely, Job, you know how I did this. And the answer is, Job wasn't even born. And God's point is simply this. Job, since you weren't alive and present at creation, and since you cannot fully understand and explain how I created everything in the world, how in the world can you correct me in my rule of the universe? I'm the one who created the universe. You weren't even alive. And then in verses 8 to 11, God moves to the second category. And he says, Job, what do you know about oceanography? 
beginning in verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when it made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And in these verses, God describes the ocean as a newborn baby bursting forth from the womb. And he asked Job, Job, who gives the ocean its clouds and its darkness and its coastlines? Job, who commands the limits of the ocean and keeps it at bay? Job, who commands the sandy beaches to push back the waters of the sea so that everything isn't flooded? Job, if the ocean knows its limits, why don't you? Who do you think you are? And then in Job chapter 38, verses 12 to 30, and verses 34 to 38, God moves to the third category, and he says, Job, what do you know about meteorology? Job, how do you understand and explain the weather and the constellations of the heavens and the universe? Here's the summary of his questions. In chapter 38, verses 12 to 15, he says, Job, have you ever commanded the sun to arise and dispel the darkness? If you can't command the sun, Job, why do you think you can command me? In verses 16 to 18 of chapter 38, he says, Job, have you seen or understood the deep mysteries of my physical creation? If you can't understand the deep mysteries of creation, Job, how do you think you can understand the deep mysteries of God? In chapter 19, to 21, or in verses 19 to 21 of Job 38, he says, Job, are you old enough to remember the beginning of light and darkness? If you can't answer these simple questions, Job, that are basic to the running of the universe, why do you think you can do a better job? In Job chapter 38, verses 22 to 23, we'll read these verses. These are excellent verses. He says in beginning in verse 22, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? And do you see what he's asking? He's saying, Job, have you ascended the highest of the heights and seen where I store all of the snow that I pour down on the earth? Have you seen where I store all the drops of hail and bring them out when it's time for battle? Do you know where I keep those things, Job? If you don't know that, Job, how can you explain my providence in dealing in your life? In verses 24 to 28 of chapter 38, he says, Job, can you plot the course of rain so that it accomplishes its purposes? Can you tell the lightning where to flash and when to flash? Can you father rain and dew so that the land has all the water it needs? Job, can you explain why it rains in the desert where no one lives and it creates an oasis? Can you explain that to me, Job? And then in chapter 38, verses 29 to 30, he says, Job, do you understand the origin of ice? Do you know how ice is formed, Job? Can you explain that scientifically to me? Job, if you don't understand the origin of ice, what makes you think you understand the origin of suffering and trials and pain and heartache? You can't understand it, Job. 
And then in verses 34 to 38 of Job chapter 38, he says, Job, can you speak to the clouds and cause it to rain? Can you send out lightning to the ends of the earth? Do you have wisdom to number the clouds and cause rain to fall on the earth? Job, can you control nature? Job, if you can't control nature, what makes you think you can control what happens in your life? You can't, Job. Then he moves in verses 31 to 33 of chapter 38 to the fourth category. And he says, Job, what do you know about astronomy? Can you control the movements of the planet? Can you control the stars? Can you cause the constellations to appear in the proper seasons? And he's basically saying to Job, Job, just as you cannot control the galaxies above, neither can you control the circumstances in your life. That's why you need me, Job. That's why you can't do it on your own. And then in verses 39 to 41 of chapter 38 and all of chapter 39, he moves to the fifth and final category. And he says, Job, what do you know about zoology? And here's what he does. In all of these verses, he quizzes Job about the animal kingdom. And he lists 11 different animals, six beasts and five birds. And he asks Job to explain how God created and cares for all of them. And so let me give you a little summary of these questions. Look in chapter 38, beginning in verse 39. And he says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Job, can you provide food for the lions? Job, if I care for lions in this way by providing food, the strongest beast of the animal kingdom. Don't you think, Job, I can provide for you and your suffering? And then verse 41 of chapter 38. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? Job, the ravens are dependent upon me for their food and their care and their well-being. Why won't you be dependent upon me in your suffering? And then in chapter 39, verses 1 through 4, he asked Job if Job knows when the wild mountain goats or the deer mate and give birth to their young. And he simply says to Job, Job, if you don't understand these situations, how could you possibly understand this season of pain that I'm bringing you through? It's all for a purpose, Job. I'm using it in your life. It's a part of my master plan for you. If you can't understand how these animals give birth and their life cycle, what makes you can think you can understand what I'm doing with you? And then in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 39, he says, Job, do you know how to set the wild donkey free? Job, do you know how to harness the ox? The ox is stubborn, Job. It's untamable, yet it can be relied on to help man. And Job, here's the implication. You can't tame me. You must rely on me. You must trust in me to help you, Job. And then a very humorous passage. In chapter 39, verses 13 to 18, God describes the ways of the ostrich. And he asks Job if he can understand 
the ways of the ostrich. How the ostrich uh, lays its eggs and then forgets where it lays them. And how it spreads out its wings, but it can't fly. And how all of these mysteries surround this bird. And his point is, Job, I created this bird for my purpose. I designed it specifically the way I wanted it to be created. And there's a mystery surrounding this bird, Job. And just as there's a mystery surrounding this bird, there is a mystery surrounding your life. And it's beyond your understanding and finding out. And so Job rests in the mystery in verses 19 to 25 of chapter 39, he describes the war horse. And he says, Job, do you give the horse its strength? Do you make him leap? Do you put in him courage for battle, Job? You can't do those things, Job. You're inferior to the war horse. And if you're inferior to the war horse, you're inferior to me. And then look at how he ends chapter 39 in verses 26 to 30. He says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are. There he is. Job, did the hawks fly by your wisdom? Did the eagles mount up at your command? Job, just as the eagles can look down with keen insight, so do I as your God and your creator. I look down from high above on your life with penetrating insight. And Job, I will provide for all of your needs. Five categories in which he questions Job about his creation and he teaches Job and he teaches you and me through all of these categories that God alone has created everything and everyone and that God alone controls everything and everyone that he created and through all of these questions and through these categories, God is revealing to Job and to you and me his absolute sovereign power and grace over everything and everyone in the universe, including Job. And when God was finished asking him all of these questions, Job was completely silent. He couldn't answer one question from Almighty God. So look in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, and see how God silences Job. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40, there is a pause in God's questions as God challenges Job once again to answer him. And in verse 4, Job answers God. 
And he confesses to God his utter unworthiness before God's omnipotent, omniscient sovereignty. And notice what the text says that Job does. He takes his hand and he puts it over his mouth. It is a picture of utter humiliation before a superior. Job is done playing the fault finder with God. Job is done arguing with God. Job is done contending with God. Job has gotten a glimpse of the power of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, and the sovereignty of God. And there is only one thing that Job can do. Cover his mouth. God silenced Job. He was done. Now let's apply this for a minute. By virtue of his position as creator, God is Lord over all of creation. Listen, friends, he has a right to do with his creation whatever he pleases. The Bible is clear on this, friends. God is the potter and his creation, including you and me, are the clay. God is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And in our suffering, in our trials, in our pain, in our heartbreak, we must never lose sight of this position of God. He reigns and rules from the heavens and this God, this sovereign God, does what he pleases, whether you like it or not. And so, you and I must be like Job and bow in humility before this sovereign God and put our hands over our mouths and have this divine perspective that God will do whatever he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, without our permission. Do you have that kind of perspective of God? It's the only kind of perspective that I would submit to you this morning that will sustain you in your suffering. Application number two. Job was so focused on knowing why all of these calamities had happened to him. But do you see, friends, that this passage teaches us that there is something more important than knowing why God does what he does. Namely, it's learning to cling to God in faith when everything around us is threatening to destroy our souls. It is not about having all of our whys answered to our satisfaction. It is about knowing the God who holds our life and our souls in his hand. One commentator said it this way, I have long since quit seeking the answer to that question why in my own life. God owes me no explanation. He has the right to do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Why? 
because he's God. Job didn't need to know why these things happened as they did. He just needed to know who was responsible and who was in control. Job just needed to know God. And that's what you need. And that's what I need. We don't need to know why. We need to know God. And this is what God did for Job through these questions. He revealed himself to Job. Application number three. Haven't you ever heard somebody say, well, when I get to heaven, the first question I'm going to ask God is this. Maybe you've said that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and fess up to that one. You've either said it or you've heard it said. And I want to remind every single one of us in this room this morning through this passage of Scripture that none of us should ever think that on the day when we stand before God that we will shout at Him, that we will question Him, or that we will demand any kind of answer from Him. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 to 17 that when the sixth seal of God's judgment is opened from the scroll in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all the kings of the earth, all the prominent people ran and fled and tried to hide from the sovereign wrath of the Lamb of God on the throne. No, dear friends, you won't ask God a single question. You won't demand anything from God. You will bow before your sovereign in humility. God is sovereign. And Job is silent. Now let me show you the second truth. I want you to see the sovereignty of God and the sorrow of Job. In chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, God confronts Job and he says then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said dress for action like a man I will question you and you make it known to me will you even put me in the wrong will you condemn me that you may be in the right so the Bible says that God speaks to Job once more out of the whirlwind commanding him once again to dress for action like a man and prepare himself for another round of questions And then in verse 8 of chapter 40, God wants to know if Job is going to continue to accuse him of being unjust. He wants to know if Job is going to continue to condemn him so that Job can say that he is in the right and that God is in the wrong. Can you picture it? After these five categories of questions covering the whole universe, God now looks at Job and says, Job, you're going to continue to argue with me? You're going to continue to accuse me? You're going to continue to say that you're right and I'm wrong, Job? Is that what you plan to do? And then in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 40, God challenges Job. And he says, have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. 
Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God is challenging Job's main argument against him. All throughout the book, Job has been charging God with injustice in his governing of the world. And so what God does in verses 9 to 14 of Job chapter 40 is he invites Job to take over his throne if he thinks he can rule the universe better than God can. And in verse 9 of chapter 40, he says, Job, do you have an arm like mine? Do you have an arm of strength and power? That's what he's describing. Job, do you have the power of God? Job, do you have the voice of God? Do you sound like me when you speak, Job? Do you have my power? Do you have my voice? And then in verse 10 of chapter 40, God asks Job about his appearance, and he commands Job to put on the majesty and the dignity and the glory and the splendor of God. Job, if you're going to rule the universe in my place, you got to have my power. you got to have my voice. you got to have my glory, my splendor, my majesty, my beauty. So dress yourself up, Job. Get yourself looking like me, and then come and sit on my throne. And then in verses 11 to 14, he sarcastically invites Job, when he steps on his throne, to deal with the things that God has to deal with every single day. The wickedness of man, and the pride of man, and evil in the world. And he said, Job... You've been saying you've got it all figured out. You're right and I'm wrong. Now's your chance to prove it, Job. Step on my throne and deal with wickedness and evil and pride. And Job, if you can successfully deal with all these things I deal with every day, I'll admit that you're right and I'm wrong and you can save yourself. Do you know why God did that, friends? Because he knew there's no way Job could do what he was challenging Job to do. Job, standing with his hand over his mouth, is being crushed further and further in humility by the power of God. Now, in probably the most controversial section in this massive book, God confounds Job beginning in verse 15 of chapter 40, all the way through chapter 41. And he brings up two more animals, behemoth and leviathan. Now, some say that these two animals are prehistoric dinosaurs. Others say they represent the hippopotamus and the crocodile. And I could bore you this morning with thought after thought about all of these things. Just trust me when I tell you that my library is full of pages and pages and pages of commentary about these two animals. The point of their appearance is that these massive creatures symbolize the embodiment of power and strength. A power and strength beyond man's ability to harness and control. A power and strength that only God can control. Now, I believe that these two animals, behemoth and leviathan, are real creatures. In Job chapter 40, verse 15, the Bible says that God 
made them both. And in Psalm 104 and 26, the Bible says that God made Leviathan. You'll also notice in these verses that God describes in great detail the anatomy of both of these animals. And that leads us to believe that these are real creatures. So what's the point? Well, in verses 15 to 24 of chapter 40, we learn the lesson of the behemoth. And when God references him, he ceases his pattern of questions until the very end of chapter 40. And he just calls on Job to observe this magnificent creature. The word behemoth literally translates super beast. And God reminds Job in this passage that he is the creator of both behemoth and man. And yet God made both of them incredibly different. He says in verse 19, for instance, of chapter 40, look at that verse. Behemoth is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. He says that he's one of his greatest works that he has ever created. And he is so strong, only God the creator can subdue him with his sword. And at the end of chapter 40 in verse 24, God asked Job if anyone, any man, any human being could capture this beast. And the answer is no one can capture this beast. And the point is, Job, if you can't deal with behemoth, if you can't capture him, what makes you think you can control and capture the creator of behemoth? You must submit to me. I rule over him. And then all of chapter 41 is dedicated to Leviathan. Leviathan literally translates the sea monster or the sea serpent. Now, God has a sense of humor in chapter 41 when he talks about Leviathan. Look at verses 1 through 7 with me. You've got to put on your uh, funny cap for this and think about God asking Job these questions. It's hilarious. In verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Job, can you capture him with a rod and a reel? Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words, Job? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash and take him home for your daughters? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? And obviously, the answer to all of these questions is, no, Job, you can't do that. And then I love verse 8. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You'll never do that again, Job. Right? Haven't you ever done something in your life, and you got done, and you regret it, and you said, I'll never do that again. And God says to Job, Job, if you think you're stronger than Leviathan, go ahead, put your hands on him. And after you've done that, you'll say, I'll never do that again. I'll never mess with Leviathan. And then in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 41, God tells Job that man's hope of subduing this monster is false. No one can stir him up. No one can control him. 
And if no one can control Leviathan, why do people think they can control God? And if you can't control Leviathan, he says at the end of verse 10, look at it. Who then is he who can stand before me? Oh, what a great question, friends. Do you see that? If you can't stand before Leviathan, Job, what makes you think you can stand before me? Powerful question from a powerful God. And then in verse 11, God drives his point home. Look at this. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is no debtor to anyone. Who does he owe anyone anything? God is sovereign. God is in control. Everything is already his. And then in verses 12 to 25, he describes in detail the body of Leviathan. He has fierce teeth, strong jaws, mighty strength, impenetrable protective covering, and a strong neck. And then beginning in verse 26 down to verse 29, he mentions seven weapons that are useless against Leviathan. The sword, the spear, the dart, the javelin, the arrow, the slingstone, and the club. Leviathan sees all of these Weapons coming at him, and he says they're like a paper straw or a rotted piece of wood. He's not afraid of any of them. And then in verses 31 to 34, God says that there's nothing on earth that is Leviathan's equal. He is a creature without fear. He is king over all who are proud. Job, you can't handle Leviathan. You can't handle behemoth. You can't handle me now why why does god put behemoth and leviathan in the text in the conversation well many people think that these are just an extension of animals that job has already talked about and i would submit to you that that can't be true because of the context of the passage if Job is just talking merely about animals, like he did in chapter 39, then why did God pause in his questioning and restart a whole other conversation surrounding these two animals? Why not include them in chapter 39? If this second speech is simply God saying, Job, you haven't been able to tame a hippo or a crocodile, why do we need a second speech? It seems very anticlimactic to the passage. So there must be something more here because I'm submitting to you this morning, friends, that this passage is leading somewhere. We reached a peak at the beginning of chapter 40 when Job put his hand over his mouth. But God's not finished with Job. And so after that peak, is it just going to go downhill and talk about these animals? Or is it going to continue to rise to another peak? And as I'm going to show you in a minute in the text, the flow of the argument from God is going to rise even high, higher and make Job even lower. So there must be something else going on in the text. So who is behemoth? Well, a major scholar who's studied this way more than I ever could argues that he is the embodiment of evil and chaos. 
that he is the personification of death because only God can control him. And so he argues that behemoth is picturing death for Job. Now, because of the amount of material in the text dedicated to Leviathan, we must assume and emphasize that Leviathan is the main thrust of God's second speech. And here's what I want you to know about Leviathan. Now, don't tune out on me. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere, and I'm going to get there pretty quickly, and the sermon's almost over, so hang tough with me. He's mentioned, Leviathan is mentioned three other times in the Old Testament. Did you know that? The psalmist mentions him in Psalm 74, verses 12 to 14, when he describes God's exodus of his people out of Egypt. And the psalmist says in these verses that God, in that exodus, crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan. God defeated Leviathan in the exodus from Egypt. In Psalm 104, verses 25 and 26, the psalmist describes the creation event where God created Leviathan. And then, in Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 1, Isaiah describes the future day of judgment. And Isaiah describes God's judgment this way. He will judge the fleeing serpent. He will judge the twisting serpent. And he will judge the dragon called Leviathan. The dragon called Leviathan. I would submit to you this morning that Leviathan is the Satan of Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. The arch enemy of God and the arch enemy of Job. Leviathan is the embodiment of beastliness, terror, and undiluted evil. And God's point with behemoth and Leviathan to Job is simply this. Job, you do not have the ability to keep evil on a leash. Job, you do not have the ability to conquer the evil of the world. Only the Lord, only Yahweh, only the sovereign God of the universe is powerful enough to subdue and defeat all forms of evil. And Job, just as God is sovereign over all of creation in Job chapter 38 and 39, Job, God is sovereign over all forms of evil in Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. And friends, if you would fast forward to the New Testament of your Bible, what does your Bible tell you about God and evil? That God has sovereignly rendered death and evil empty through the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His redemptive work on the cross. God, through behemoth and Leviathan, is pointing Job to the Redeemer that Job has been longing for for 41 chapters. God is sovereign over evil. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
And the writer of Hebrews is talking about Christ and his work and how Christ through his death on the cross has once for all defeated death for all time so that in the midst of your suffering and pain and heartache, you don't have to be afraid of death if you know Christ because Christ has defeated death. And if you're worried this morning about the world, the flesh, and the devil... The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, in verse number 2, that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at His second coming, He will capture through one of His angels, Satan. And this is what the Bible says that He will do to him in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. And He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He will be seized. He will be bound for a thousand years. And then God will release him for one final battle. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, God says this about the devil's end. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. The one who poured out affliction on Job will himself experience affliction for all eternity in the lake of fire with all of his demons and all those who don't know Christ as their savior. Do you see it? That God is sovereign over evil and pain and suffering. Now you say to me, Pastor, this doesn't answer all my questions about the problem of suffering and evil. I agree. So listen to Christopher Ashe. It does something deeper. It opens our eyes to who God is. He is the only God without rival. Even the mystery of evil is his mystery. Even Satan, the Leviathan, is God Satan. And that means as we suffer and as we sit with others who suffer, we may with absolute confidence bow down to this sovereign God, knowing that evil that comes may be terrible, but it cannot and it will not ever go one tiny fraction beyond the leash on which God has put it. And suffering and evil will not go on forever. For the one to whom we belong is God. He is sovereign, not evil, not pain, not suffering, not the devil, God. And so how would you respond to this? Well, I'll tell you how Job responded in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. He confessed. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that I counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Look at verse 5. This is another underlined in verse. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job confesses in verse 2 that he knows that God can do all things and that no purpose of his 
can be thwarted. God will do what he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, with whom he pleases. All of his sovereign purposes will be carried out. And Job confesses that to God. In verse 3, Job confesses his guilt. He says that he uttered things that he didn't understand, things that were way too wonderful for him to even talk about. God, I've seen you. I never should have said a word. I should have kept my hand over my mouth. In verse 4, he tells God that he knows he's failed his exam, and now he's ready to listen and learn from God. Verse 5, as I mentioned to you, I think it's one of the most powerful verses in the whole book of Job. Do you see his confession? It it, it took me all the way back to Job chapter 1 and how Job viewed God and interceded for God. And look carefully at his confession, friends, because you may find yourself right where Job is in verse 5. He says to God, I've heard a lot of things about you. People have told me a lot of things about you, God. I've learned a lot of things about you. God, I've got a lot of head knowledge about you. But now, now, God, I see you. My perspective's different. I haven't just heard about you. Now it's personal. It's personal. I've had an encounter with the God of the universe who created me. He sees God in a way that he's never seen him before. And in verse 6, he despises himself in utter humility, and he repents in dust and ashes. And do you know what's missing from verse 6? The narrator doesn't tell us that in this moment, God won the wager with Satan. In chapter 1 and 2, Job held fast to his integrity and he worshiped God even though he lost everything. So in closing, let me help you think about this last section. When God revealed his character to Job and Job saw his sin, he was quick to repent. What about you? Are you quick to repent? Friends, do you you understand this morning that every one of us in this room just had an encounter with the living God through his word? And that every question that God asked Job, he asked you and me? And for some of us, These questions have revealed that we are not in a relationship with God. We are separated from him. We don't know Christ. We're not Christians. If we were to die today, we would not go to heaven with God. God has shown us that through his word and through these questions, who he really is and who we are in light of him. And my question to you simply is this, unbeliever, this morning. Will you repent and confess your sins and trust in Christ to be your Savior? Will you do that today? God is asking you today if you will repent and trust Christ. Will you? Suffering friend who has mounted argument after argument against God like Job. God has questioned you this morning. God has 
brought you face to face with him through his word. And he's asking you if you'll repent before him. Will you? Application number two. I want you to notice clearly in chapter 42 that God did not provide an answer to Job. And yet Job is at peace and he's satisfied. Why? Because God pointed Job to his unchanging character and God called Job to trust him, to trust his character. And just as God called Job to trust his character, he's calling you and me to trust him as well. Job set aside his unanswered questions, his rebellious complaints, his self-righteous arguments, and he simply trusted God. He trusted that God had a good and wise purpose for his suffering. Will you? Will you trust that God has a good and wise purpose for your suffering? Will you trust in God's character? Friends, do you see? Job didn't need to know why anymore. He now knows who. And because he knows who, he can trust even in the midst of the ash heap when it really hurts. Will you? Will you behold your God? Will you see him seated on his throne? Will you see the sovereign who is over everything and everyone that he has created and spoken into existence? Would you see him over all of the evil and the suffering and the pain? Would you see him over Satan himself? And would you see that nothing can stop this God? And no one can stop this God. He is sovereign over all. Let's pray.